Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Ultispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, the one and only Mr. Steve Owens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How are you? Well, I'm doing great, Steve. Now, I understand this week you had a troubleshooting experience uh, and it had a slightly unexpected outcome. Yeah, I thought I would share this because the number of people on the Internet who have posted about this is, I don't know, it seems like infinite. So the symptom is I have a computer that runs an NVIDIA card and it just stopped waking up after sleep. So, well, technically that's not true. What would happen is it would try to resume, but X would spin at 100%. You could SSH into the box, you could ping it, uh, but it just wouldn't resume any of the graphical. You couldn't even get to the TTY on the actual machine itself. And if you go searching around for this sort of stuff on the internet, it's full, like tens of pages of search results on the same issue from specific distros all the way down to the individual NVIDIA developer forms. So I it started to happen last month, but it was one of those things that like every time that my computer had gone to sleep, I just needed to get some work done. So I'd pull up my laptop, I'd SSH into the box, and I'd just reboot it and move on with my day. And this week I decided, well, last week, I suppose, I decided that I was actually going to sit down and try and fix this silly problem because it happened a couple of times in the same day and, right. and you fix computers for a living kind of yeah <laughs> so i as you do you try once you get desperate you try all of the little asinine things that you find on the internet and none of them worked from compiling your drivers to setting kernel flags and rolling this kernel version and all of that fun stuff nothing worked i'm about four or five hours in and i start i so i have a mirror locally of every package that gets installed as part of just conserving bandwidth here in the house because we all run the same uh, distro. And so I started to roll back drivers and kernel versions and and everything that I could think of back to the time where I knew everything worked and nothing worked. So I gave up for the day, went to bed, got up the next morning is like, well, you know, I don't want to think that my video card's dying, but maybe I should open up the computer. Sometimes reseeding RAM helps or just reseeding computer components in general helps. Mm -hmm. So pull out the video card, which has never been like, I I do take out the computer and and blow it out every once in a while, but the video card has never been uh, removed since I built this computer. Sure, how much dust gets in a video card? Right, especially in the slot of the video card. Right, it's already filled up with the video card. Uh, So I pull out the, the... card and i'm looking in there and i see like gray specs in the pcie slot and so i blow it out and then i clean the contacts of the video card i plug everything back in and voila 
everything started working. I rolled forward to the latest versions of all of the things and everything has continued to work to this day. So let me ask you, let me ask you the question for, for those that are thinking to themselves, did Steve just troubleshoot his snowflake? Why was it still the right troubleshooting call? You notice something doesn't work. You don't just blow it away and start over. You dig to find the root cause of the problem. Why did you do that? Well, part of it is because there has to be a logical reason. This is the way the brain works anyways. Mm -hmm. It's not always the case, but you're thinking, okay, something changed. I should be able to figure out because this has worked for time immemorial. As long (laughs) as this computer has existed, this function has worked. Mm -hmm. So my options are A, you know, hardware is actually breaking down on you, which could be a thing. Or B, there's something else that you should be able to solve, mm-hmm. right? Because it did work and now it's not. So the troubleshooting steps of trying to roll through all of that is like, well, maybe I got a new version of the driver and, and something happened or who knows? Because NVIDIA has done all kinds of stuff, including shipping their own system D units specifically for NVIDIA suspend and resume, which I didn't know before I ran through this process. So... Um, all kinds of things could have triggered this issue and it wouldn't have mattered whether I was on an immutable distro or Ubuntu or RHEL <laughs> or anything like that. When the video card isn't plugged into the thing by way of something in between the video card and the pins, even if it's dust, it doesn't really matter what distros yeah, really. Exactly. And that dust was just causing communication problems. Well, I didn't have any troubleshooting wins that way this week, but what I did have was news of sorts and that is that our board is finally getting a return and god i cannot wait for the time where i'm not begging and borrowing studio space and studio gear to do the show every week to have our board returned so a huge thanks to the telos alliance for doing it a huge thanks to all of the to, to include telos who offers rental equipment and stuff like that but all of the other places that have loaned me space and have loaned me equipment over the past what well, gosh what's it been now three months two months something like that since long time. since yeah. summit, so since May, so be, I I can't wait to have my studio put back together and be back in it. And a huge huge thank you to Axia for doing all of that and making products that you can buy one time and then when it breaks you don't have to throw it in the trash. You can you can fix it. They can put new parts in it. They can they can bring it back to life. That, and maybe when you get it back, you can get some uh, sound effects on your board for bumpers where you can have people cheering for you now. I can. I could do that. Uh, that'll be the, that'll be the way that we celebrate when the board has returned, Steve. There you go. For now, let's get into some feedback. Our first email comes in today from Ahmed. Ahmed writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve. On episode 354, you discussed the latest Google's anti-competition case. I think government and companies should be suing Google for a dangerous policy it has with that. Anybody. I mean, anybody set up a Google search ad that shows at the first position of Google search results. This way, I can, for example, set up an ad targeting people who search for American Airlines. And if I bid high enough to my other advertisers, my ad will get shown above American Airlines itself. The dangerous part is that I can set up a fake flight booking page that looks exactly like the legit one and steal the user's credit card information. In my country, this has been the most widespread phishing scam. People have lost all their savings to a similar scam where a criminal group used Google ads to always show the first result. So when you search for the National Highway Agency, you'd click on the first result, but because they trust Google to show them the best result first. We've reported tens of ads 
that, that are still going. Apparently, Google does nothing to verify the ads before they're shown first. This can ruin people's lives and cause fatal damage to businesses and government agencies whose websites can get buried under phishing ads, and yet Google doesn't care. Why doesn't Google move ads to a separate column, for example, with a clean heading showing that they're not associated with search results? They're indirectly encouraging users to click on ads by melding them with current results because they make money when you click an ad, which is not the case when you see a normal, legit result. So here's the deal, right? Ahmed, you answered your own question. Why doesn't Google move ads to a separate column, for example? You called it. They indirectly encourage users to click on ads because they make money when you click on an ad. That's why. Steve, your your thoughts. I mean, n- neither one of us, I don't think, are Google users. So, I mean, it's kind of like you're preaching to the choir here. But thoughts. I mean, at some point, though, how many people, like, the idea here is you're trying to show somebody something that you want to encourage them to go look at. So if we take the devil's advocate, so first of all, I don't think that ads are bad, to, to be clear, right? I think that some ads are are useful in terms of getting your information out about a product or service or whatever. And so I'm not one of those people that are like, mur, 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 all ads are bad, terrible, whatever, um, because I think they serve a legitimate function. And so sure. when you take that kind of mindset and you think, well, if you label it as an ad, people are just going to skip over that information anyways, as in like, maybe they scroll past it or whatever. There's something to be said for, for, um, freedom of choice and all the rest of that. But at the, on the flip side, as a person that's trying to get your information out, what's worse having like doing some sort of spam campaign or simply just placing an ad with, with something that puts your thing, which is supposedly legitimately interesting to the person based on their search query. Right. That's the thought, right? So is that really terrible? I don't really think that is terrible. Not only that. As long as you, as long as you're getting legitimate results back for the ads. Yeah. And I mean, here's the other thing to think about too, right? As a business owner and as as a person who deals with businesses, they really like having the granularity over the way that they're presented on the internet. Right. And so like even things as way as the legal name that Google would ordinarily scrape off of the site versus the way that they want it to appear in the search results. I think there's all sort of legitimate reasons that Google does that. I think that's what's going to make this case so interesting is nobody has to point their web browser to Google.com. People do that all on their own. Companies do that by default, not because Google is forcing them to, but because they want the results that Google has to offer. So again, I'm not I, I'm not asympathetic to what Ahmed is talking about. I actually agree in principle with a lot of this. Is part of why I don't really use Google, but at the same time, I don't have. Yeah, I mean, I don't hold any ill will to somebody who does use Google. And and as I said last episode, like every once in a while, I do go searching for something. I'm like, huh, no hit sun duck not what I'm looking for. Let's try the Googs and see what it happens. And ninety so, percent of the time, it's the same. Sometimes there's a there's an advantage though. One of the things that I noticed this week uh, that was a super irritant on this idea of like companies paying, getting paid to put Google as the search engine or whatever, somehow in my rollback or roll forward, even though everything else inside my Firefox stayed the same bookmarks, I remembered all my pages and stuff like that, my search engine was changed to Google and I was supremely annoyed by that. Like, 
it just decided it was it had changed my search preference from whatever I normally put to Google. And I was really irritated. Tiny asks in the Geek Lab, you can too by tagging Marlin. The question button says, hey guys, I've been using TPM2 to decrypt drives on my personal machine for the last couple of years. I'm using Clevis and plan on using systemd Krypton roll. After my next install, I might possibly use a security key. I think this will be the future for Linux since it provides a way to protect against physical theft without having to remember a second password or type in a server environment. There are times where I'd have to reconfigure TPM encryption since the OS measurement has changed. and There's nothing in the drive decryption screen that says, please wait while a device decrypts your drive. But overall, it's better than having to type in multiple passwords every time I reboot. Another thing to note is that this already is how most BitLocker setups are done in corporate environments and how the UX is seamless and encryption can still be done post-install, which hurts, admit. And he links to the blog in Fedora uh, running with uh, TPM. So I, I guess my first question, Steve, have you seen any of this in production and or would you ever do this yourself? So I have on very rare occasions seen uh, Clevis with, oh, I can't even remember, somebody out there will, will know immediately, but there's essentially an enterprise um, situation with the open source tools where it acts as a centralized server. And when a server comes online, it will hand out to trusted computers in order for them to decrypt and boot properly. So that if the server isn't there and you steal said computer, it won't ever decrypt itself, but you don't hamstring yourself in a data center where it's hanging for a password. So interesting. I have, I have and I've set that up. Like I've actually gone through and done the setup for this client myself. So it is interesting. It is possible, but it's pretty rare. I think I've done it twice in eight years. Yeah. See, and you tell me if I'm misstepping here. My rationale for data center stuff is always, well, look, physical security is important. All of our servers are inside of a data center that there's the outside gate. Then there's the inside door that just gets you into the lobby. Then there's the man trap. On the other side of the man trap is the data hall. And then finally past that next locked door is the actual data hall plus the cage combination to get in there and if you can get through all of that you have physical access to the box i feel like not much is going to stop you depends if you're running your own data center right like yeah, yeah sure sure if it's running i've in, been at clients where the data center is actually part of the building they work in sure sure it's like the the, the room that used to be the broom closet but got a racks and now it's the data center kind of a thing uh no I'm like legitimate data center oh, okay. but they, they just stuff. kind of built offices around the data center mm. so people would be able to get in i see what you're saying yep Anyway, I appreciate it, Tiny. It draws my attention to a couple of things. First of all, um, that Fedora has been doing this for a while and that this is available. Also, I appreciate the link to the Krypton Roll security keys. We'll have those included in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. Penguin writes in again via Marlin. The question button says, Noah, I've been having issues with Linux Mint all day. It keeps logging me off mid-click. Is there a fix? If it was saying drivers, but it was not working. So, uh, Steve, you think he should clean his computer? <laughs> uh, well, I think that sounds like a different issue, but you never know. Uh, reseeding things seems to be magical sometimes. Seven seven five or eight six six eight five five two eight zero fourteen thirty three eight five five four five zero six. My goodness, eight five five four five zero Noah. I can't think today. That's what's happened. You can join the program, or you can email live at 
com. We'd love to have you join the conversation. Tiny writes in and says, what is your current Grafana setup like? I heard you mention it on Linux Unplugged the other day and that you feel blind without it. Now, I'm curious if you're using it for just metrics or if you're using it for metrics, logs, and traces. What databases are you querying with Grafana? What values are you getting out of it that makes you feel blind without it? So at, at its most basic at its most basic standpoint, what I meant by that comment is I can log in and see current CPU usage, current memory usage, current disk usage, and current network usage. Now I get, hey, no, you could do that with NTOP, you could do that with top. I, I understand that there are ways I can ascertain that information by SSHing in. But the fact that I can log into it almost like a person logs into social media and get like stats on my server and then go back in time, the ability to look just having something actually graphed off to go, oh, that's interesting. The CPU generally stays below 25%. But at this time, consistently at this hour or whatever, it spikes to over 100% or just at 100%. That's interesting. I wonder what's happening. You know what I mean? And and it alerts you to things that would otherwise be sporadic. And I, I just... Unless you intentionally set up to log and go back and look, you'd never catch. I don't even really, I don't even find myself paying any particular attention. I just, uh, you know, check my email, check this, log into the Grafana dashboard, and I get, you know, at least the last, you know, four or five hours right away, and then I can zoom in or out to, to see more. As far as databases, it's the, the big one that I'm, I'm using it for is, is, is the Matrix server, which has Postgres. However... I've gotten to the point where because it's deployed via Ansible, so it's just a role, I started to add that to other machines because I've just found it's a useful thing to have if you can map stats dot whatever your server is to, okay, so it does what it ordinarily does, but stats dot that thing also tells you about it. Steve, I know you've been looking at Grafana or you've actively used Grafana, uh, you know, uh, deeply, but you've also been looking at using Grafana to replace some proprietary alternatives when there isn't a proprietary alternative in place. You've said, hey, this could potentially work for you. So Grafana can be more than just a stack, like Grafana Labs as the over the umbrella company, I suppose. Mm -hmm. They also do more enterprisey stuff that involves things beyond just graphing. So they started with graphing and now they are moving into the ability to do tracing. So we won't get into a lecture about tracing. They'll take the rest of the show. <laughs> but uh, essentially, it's a way for you to get stats about how a packet travels through your application and gets the end user. And it also is getting into logging. So if you're interested to kind of go search for yourself, the tracing part of it's called Tempo. So Grafana Tempo does the tracing. Okay. And Grafana Loki does the logs. And the reason that... This is particularly appealing to me is because it builds it all into Grafana. So you can click on an element in Grafana and then say, show me the traces for this. And then you can click on whatever and say, okay, show me the log for that thing. Mm -hmm. And it all just kind of seamlessly works together as long as you've got it, all, all the information coming into the same system. And it's fantastic to have an open source um, option in this arena. You get to choose how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. Yep, because it just kind of plugs in. As people know, you can install Grafana by itself, or you can start plugging in the other pieces as well. So, I pulled up stats just as we we're as as we we're sitting here, and I am going over and just looking at just Linux Delta server as as we do this episode. And it's 
I can see, you know, five hours back where the CPU is spiking. And then it tells me via color code, it's the StreamWriter system. Now, as I sit here off the top of my head, do I know exactly what the StreamWriter system is? No, but it gives me something to look at to go through and say, okay, this is the part of the machine is where I'm hitting a threshold, where I'm hitting a bottleneck, where I have a problem. And we can go back and look and say, how do we fix that? I don't, I'm not saying that there aren't tools to do that other way, other ways, but they're just not as they, they're not as inviting to go fix problems. But when you can just log in and look at something and go, Oh, okay, here's what's happening. And here's, here's the Prometheus scrape time, for example, you know, that that's, again, these are just things I wouldn't think to go look, or I'd have to go research where to find these specific pieces of information. But you know, the, the stack CPU usage, the Prometheus scrape time, memory, all of these things are just, they're just laid out in front of you. So like I say, it, it, it feels like having a server without that, it starts to feel like I'm, I'm driving blind, like with, you know, like duct tape over the speedometer or something. I, I don't know. It's hard, hard, kind of hard to explain. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of September 17th, 2023, Here's the Linux and open source news. Fedora plans to offer the KDE Plasma 6 desktop on Wayland and drop Plasma with X11 for the Fedora 40 release. Linux 6.7 is set to drop support for Itanium 64. Linux patches have begun to remove Riser FS from default kernel builds. Tails 5.17.1 is out. Canonical brings real-time Linux to Amazon Web Services. Red Hat is working on a delayed module signature verification to speed up Linux boot times. OpenSUSE is seeking a leap replacement, and the opensource.com site is reborn as opensource.net. In open source hardware news, Intel spices up its FPGA offerings with open source and RISC-V freebies. In security news, the OpenSSL project has announced that long-term support for the version of OpenSSL 1.1.1 has come to the end of its life cycle, except for paying customers. A Chinese espionage-focused hacker tracked as Earth Lucia was observed targeting government agencies in multiple countries. The hacker is using a new Linux backdoor dubbed SpriSox. Microsoft has uncovered flaws in the NCURSES library affecting Linux and macOS systems. And CISA announces the open source software security roadmap. In AI news, Venture capitalist Bill Gurley warns against regulatory capture in AI, hails the open source efforts, and calls for massive transparency in government. And in Just Because We Can news, someone has implemented the 6.1.14 kernel using the Scratch programming language, which is commonly used to teach children the basics of programming. What if I told you you could purchase a brand new laptop assembled here in the United States, load it with an operating system and have a Mac-like experience? Would you believe me? I'm not sure I believe me, but OpenSUSE Aeon promises to do something like this. So it's actually a combination of two different project products or projects, depending on how you want to, how you want to split that. But Malleable is the hardware laptop. Open source Aeon is the operating system. And the idea, we're going to split them up, talk about each one of them independently. So open source Aeon is, their goal is to be the Mac OS slash Chrome OS 
flavor of Linux. You pull it out of the box and it just works. Joining me is the interactive mumble room. Welcome in, guys. Good evening. Thanks for taking the time, Sleuth. So I, I, I want to start with this. What do you guys, so, so the, the, the basic version of what Aeon is or how they've set it up, it's based on micro OS. And this is a pet child of Richard Brown. And he got micro OS dialed into the point where it was working great for him on servers. And then he started to think to himself, I wish I had an experience like this on my laptop. What about the graphical desktop? I wish I had an experience to where I don't have to muck around with things. I don't have to think about things. I just pull it out and it just works. That's the experience I want from Linux. Now, that is a departure, admittedly, from the you get to choose your own adventure, right? Linux is filled with choices. We always hear that. Linux has so many choices. Everything is forkable. Everything is okay. All that is true. And if it's open source, you can certainly fork it and go a different direction. But the whole idea of OpenSUSE Aeon is to go the direction that Richard Brown thinks it should go. And that is to provide what he thinks is, is a very smooth experience. And so at the base is micro OS built on top of that. And so that's immutable. You don't touch it. It's installed, it's open source and it just stays there on top of that is stock GNOME, which he says is the best desktop in the world. So that's what, that's what they should be using. I did think I saw a fork of it that also has KDE as well, but primarily they're sticking with the GNOME desktop environment. Both of those things are immutable. Then on top of that is where all of your stuff lives, primarily in the form of flat packs. And for things that aren't available via flat pack, they're using DistroBox to provide those things like CLI based applications. So I guess I'll ask you first, Sleuth, and then Steve, what are your initial thoughts when I tell you a immutable OS designed to work out of the box so that you can hand it to a novice user or a senior developer and say, you can just expect this device to work like you would a Chromebook, like you would a MacBook. What's your initial response? What's your initial thought? Well, I think it's a great thing for those of whom it's designed for, specifically those users that don't care about the underlying OS and how it works. Mm -hmm. A lot of people out there, they just want to hit the power button on their computer and have it do the same thing it did yesterday, today, regardless of what's what has or hasn't changed. And if it doesn't work, they want to be able to reboot it. And so this seems like a great thing for those people. Uh, I would like to see potentially more ability to customize, but we'll see. Of course, there needs to be limits on that if we're going to keep it to normal user right? So, Steve, one of the things that st stood out to you with Endless OS was how many paper cuts were removed when the operating system was ephemeral. Do you look at this or do you hear about this and go, man, that just seems like they're iterating on it for professionals? Or do you look at this and say, mm, I don't feel like we understand the audience because the kind of people that would want an e ephemeral predictable experience are not the kind of people that are also going to want to tweak and install stuff and do all the things. I, it's. So they very clearly say, so like OpenSUSE very clearly says this is targeted at like lazy developers. Mm -hmm. And those are not the people that really tinker around with their desktop. Not really. There's there's some, right? They're, they're definitely part of the tinkerers crowd. But it has been my experience, at least with the professionals that I work with, 
they more often than not just want the damn thing to work and get out of the way. And so with that in mind, if that is who your audience is, especially because if you're working with containers or containerized applications or, you know, flatbacks or whatever, there's a lot you can do and you just don't need the operating system to break. Like if you're a Python developer, you've got virtual OMV. If you're some other developer, you're working inside of a container and you understand that workflow. I mean, I'm all, I'm all for it. As long as the entire industry doesn't go this way and, and everybody is locked down, mm-hmm. I'm all for it. I uh, So my initial impression, top of mind to me, is all of the people that I have tried to get on Linux, and the experience goes something like this. The overall install is fine. The initial stand-up is fine. Walking through and getting them adjusted is fine. Day-to-day tasks go fine. Occasionally, they'll do something like plug, plug in a printer, plug in a scanner, plug in a digital camera. Those things go fine. But then what ends up happening is they inadvertently make a change. And... It's unclear and unpredictable where information is going to come from or what that change is going to be. All that can be known is that the change will be made. We may not know about it and you may not know the source. Does So when I look at this, I guess I wonder, does something like this solve those problems? Because you can't just arbitrarily copy and paste instructions off the Internet. Well, I suppose solve is a generous situation, but at, at the same time, it definitely puts up guardrails that I think are useful depending on your use case. I absolutely am fine with running CoreOS, for example, on a server when all I know that I'm going to do with this thing is it needs to run a container, it needs to keep updated, and it needs to just work when I turn it on. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely understand that when it comes to a development environment or even if you chose to, to say, be a gamer, the game, it's very purpose driven and with purpose driven you don't want to have too many variables that can be moving you want it to turn it on and play your game or or launch your container or do whatever it is right you need it to be more like an appliance i get it atypical you see problems with this you think that this this could be a solution but there's also maybe some blind sites so one of the issues that i've worry about, I guess, with immutable operating systems is what happens when the developers of the immutable operating system start building things in, in the immutable layer that the users don't want. Um, Not to pick on Ubuntu, but the example that comes to mind is when Ubuntu brought in Amazon search scopes into their desktop environment. Mm-hmm. That in an immutable system, that would be hard to remove for the user. Yeah, well, it would um, be impossible by by definition. However, the whole idea here is they're going to base off of this very minimal base. They're adding just a stock desktop environment, and then you add everything else. Correct. Um, however, again, I go back to where is that line drawn? Mm. There's, from my knowledge of immutable operating systems, which granted is more limited than I would like, um, you, you're you talking about where is that line drawn? So say, for instance, we get to a point where Linux becomes the de facto desktop operating system. You know, nobody is using Windows and Mac anymore, just for argument's sake. Say Dell then bakes in or you know, HP or whoever 
bakes into their immutable operating system all of the bloatware that mm-hmm. they currently build into a Windows system. Mm-hmm. Where so, does that leave the user? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that kind of circles back to Steve's point. Like if everybody was doing immutable and you didn't have a way to write or change the system, that could potentially be a problem. However, you know, I would also add if it was a only a professional, like, or if, excuse me, if it was just like a corporation doing a distro or something like that, that could be potentially problematic. But the very nature of it being open source means should that ever happen? I mean, we just we just fork it, right? We move on. But it'll be interesting to see how, how you know, I'll tell you what, as, as I was kind of walking through this, here's my question to you, live at AskNoahShow.com, 855-450-NOAH. I'd be interested to get your thoughts. Does this, is this something that solves a legitimate problem by having a read-only base operating system, flat packs, all running rootless and sandboxed, and then using DistroBox for things that aren't available as flat packs, or is this sort of needless complexity? Because one of the things that is absolutely true, the more complex something is and the more moving parts there are and the more esoteric something is, the more difficult it becomes to support long term. So I, I, I look at what I look at the, the overall thing. And, I, and if, you, if you have a chance, Richard Brown gives a fantastic talk about this at uh, All Systems Go. And I will have the link in the show notes of podcast.asknowashow.com. Go listen to that. I'm I'm a tough crowd when it comes to talking me into using a different distro. In most mostly because like I I know what I like. I'm happy where I'm at. I know what I would I, I have different distros I like for different things. My mind's kind of made up on that. And anything that you like about your distro, the whole advantage of open source is I can get it in mind. So I'm not really interested in changing. And this is maybe the first time in a while that I've looked in some looked at something and went, yeah, I don't know that, that I would want that to be my daily computing experience. But I could absolutely see being that the kind of thing that you start using when people need this point of entry. And that's becoming more common. Like people don't care about their computer anymore. They mostly care about their mobile device and they use their computer and their mobile device to access hosted services. It's kind of the direction the world is going. 855 450 NOAA, 855 450 The email live at Penguin Prince calls in. Welcome in, sir. Hey. Hi there. Uh, I've been having issues with the WordPress site. I'm trying to add a page to the website, but it's not going through the uh, top of the page where you see home and stuff like that. And I thought all I had to do was publish it shit and then it would go up is there a step that i'm missing steve do you know much about wordpress design i don't unfortunately um, i've never been very interested in in setting up a wordpress so it's you're trying to so you're you're at you're modifying the code of wordpress so you're at trying to add a page and it's not rendering correctly is that right yeah i'm doing it for a, a non-profit and we've almost got it all set up but that one page and that's the donation page that i'm trying to add okay to the website it's there but no one can click on it oh well if you manually go to the url so if you know what it is so you know mydomain.com slash 
donation or whatever it is, if you manually type out the link, does the page load then? No. Oh, okay. Did you add any other pages? Like, is this the only page that you've added to the to the stock template, or have you added other pages and this one is just being stubborn? Uh, it. I completely nuked the page. I completely nuked the website and built it from grounds up. Okay. So uh, and I'm like, it was doing it it correctly and then suddenly it didn't add that one page. Interesting. Mumba room, any ideas? Or Steve? I think you've stumped I got us. Nothing. Yeah, I think um, one thing one thing to check is if it's a donations page, if you have any plugins that are doing payment processing or something like that, check in your WordPress admin page to make sure that those plugins, there's no mismatch in the version and there's no security issues with them. Here's another thing too. Now that you, that's a good point. So is the payment page, is that hosted elsewhere outside of the WordPress site? Uh, it's hosted by the, one of the guys' web, one of the old guys owns a website, a domain kind of like, Bluehost and mm-hmm. GoDaddy, he, and we're doing it through his company. Company, he, but I guess my question is: my question is, is the is the direct URL to the payment page? Is it? It's not like an embed of sorts, is it? No, uh, it's on a uh, shared host. Right. So he, here's my question: Is the WordPress is your WordPress site on the same? shared host as the payment page or are those separate things no they're on the same server okay server okay yeah you know what i don't have any easy answers for you i'm sorry Uh, i'm sorry about that i i don't have an i don't have an easy answer for you i don't even really have you something to to tell you to step off from as a place to go um that i unfortunately i just don't have a lot of experience of wordpress but here's what i'll leave you with penguin prince Everybody in the show ha- that that heard this or is listening to this episode, there's at least somebody right now that is frantically typing on their computer to say, I know exactly what Penguin Prince's problem is. I have this exact problem and here's the fix. And so when we hear from them and they get back and say, hey, here's what here's some things for him to try. Uh, we'll absolutely pass that information along and uh, perhaps you can get the, the answer in a future episode. I'm sorry we weren't able to help you more. 855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624, the email, live at knoxradio.com, or jeez, live at asknoahshow.com, Malibu, so this is the modular, adaptable, long-lasting innovation for business and leisure. This laptop is assembled in the U.S., and maybe one of the coolest laptops that you've probably never heard of, so it's the brainchild of, or it is the product of brainchild Matthew Plotz. And he wanted to create a technology company unlike any before. So at the $100, after moving into Las Vegas in 2004, he started working on Malibu. And today, they manufacture laptops and do their final assembly here in the United States, which allows them to provide a broad array of customization options compared to, you know, the big name companies like Dell, Lenovo, and Apple. Admittedly, though, they cost a pretty penny. So we'll have a link for you to Malibu.com in the show notes. You can check it out. Things that I like about them. 
So they, they're trying to go head-to-head with Apple from the standpoint of, of design. Uh, they want it to look nice. They want it to be sleek. They want the design to be clean. They want it to have good, powerful specs. Steve, one of the things that you noticed as you were digging through here is this is one of the companies that where NVIDIA is, they want discrete graphics uh, as, as on most of their models. Yeah, I just happen to be scrolling through. Even if you filter by Linux, the most of the options have either a 3050 or higher graphics card, mobile graphics card in there. And I thought that was kind of an interesting choice uh, mm-hmm. between extra battery burn, a little bit of extra heat, and the fact that sometimes having um, the hybrid graphics cards inside of Linux has been traditionally a pain. You have to use something like Bumblebee or other in order to get it to do the switching properly. And while that's definitely getting better, I have a laptop that has a 1050 Ti in it. Uh, it's not on par with the the Windows experience. And for some people, it causes confusion. So for example, you when you boot into the desktop and you're running on the Intel card, chances are your external graphics card ports are not going to work. So mm. like trying to plug in a monitor via HDMI or whatever. So my wife has one of these laptops, not not the Aeon, mm-hmm. but a graphics card, a discrete graphics card, as well as the Intel one. And I've gotten a couple of phone calls in the last year where she goes and takes it somewhere and plugs it in and says, hey, it doesn't work when I plug into this thing. And I have to walk her through changing or turning on the NVIDIA graphics card in order for that to work. And so can be confusing for people that don't understand what's happening. Whereas my understanding is Windows, the Windows driver is significantly better at figuring out, hey, you've plugged in something here. Let me turn the card on for you or um, just generally being better at power conservation. So do you remember, I, I understand it was Wimpy or yeah, Wimpy that did a bunch of the work on uh, was a bumblebee. Do you have a, a, a name for the little like GUI applet that you can use to toggle between those things? Mm, I'd have to find that. I can find it and put it in the show notes for sure. I'm drawing a blank on it, but yeah, when he, I've been using bumblebee related stuff for a very long time. And when Wimpy started tinkering around with Ubuntu Monte back in the day, he made a nice little uh, applet switcher where you can click on it and choose your graphics card and it'll log you out of the current session and then change the graphics card and log you. And then, you know, you log back in. That has come a long ways such that it's been adopted by other distros and you can find it all over the place now. Uh, that's super helpful. So you want to, you want to check that out. The other thing is it, so this, so that there's, so they, they build us all a laptop, they assemble it here in the U S they ship it with Linux. They support, uh, they support, Core boot. However, here's a question that was posed to me that is not immediately clear on their site is, does it ship with core boot or is it just compatible with core boot? And if it's just compatible with core boot, what does that flashing process look like? Like that, all of that is a bit unclear. So I'd like to learn more about some of that. I have an answer for you. Okay. Um, It depends on the model. If core boot is uh, available, as in like supported by the model, you can just choose it. It's under the firmware section when you go and and inspect like or customize the laptop model. Nice. So where they can, they do. Yep. And if they can't, it'll, it pops up and says this is incompatible with the processor. Okay. That's cool. So this is a cool company. The other thing is they have a commitment 
to sustainability. So from their site, quote, in many modern laptops, especially thin and light models, such as the Apple MacBook Air or the Pro or Dell XPS 13 or many of Lenovo's ThinkPad X1 carbon models, the memory, storage, battery, and wireless module are often soldered directly onto the motherboard. This is done to save space and allow the laptop to be thinner, but it means that the RAM and SSD are not user upgradable. However, as a part of our commitment to the right to repair movement, the memory, storage, battery, and wireless modules are all on all malleable laptops or user upgradable or user replaceable. So I thought that was a cool selling point. The ability to, you can, you can buy this one time and you can repair it for the rest of your life kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, the, my, my one kind of gripe and I understand why they do this is most of their models, pardon me, they have the barrel connector and I, I mean, all of my laptops still have the barrel connector, but it sure is nice when you use a laptop that use USB-C. Oh, and 100%. Like, oh, it's not, not very convenient for me to charge it on this side. Let me move it to the other yes. side. Yes. Yeah, I, I, frankly, I don't know that I would own a laptop without, because mostly because like now everything I do is, is docking. And I think they have, uh, they have type C. They just, um, I think they also have the barrel connector, right? So they have Type C. It's not clear to me whether charging is supported. And again, I think that it goes back to the fact that if you're if you've got a higher power draw like the GeForce cards inside there, I'm not sure that most places ship a USB C charger that can support that. Yeah, yeah. the The only manufacturer I'm even aware of that is doing stuff like that is Dell. They've got like their own 130 watt. I want to say deal that will deliver type C uh, over um, and do 130 watts. So from, from Malibu's site, can your laptops be charged or powered via USB-C? USB-C is revolutionary, blah, 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 blah. Uh, all Malibu laptops can be powered via the Thunderbolt 4 port. So from that, I read that to mean that it is a Thunderbolt interface on the other side and it does support charging up to 100 watts. Yeah, I'm just, uh, yeah, yep, so... Maybe that's maybe that's just a misunderstanding of what what I was looking at. I just happen to be looking when it, usually when you see a barrel connector, mm-hmm. it's because it needs the barrel connector for charging. So I looked at that first. You know, you know what, you know what it could be, Steve. I wonder if that's the headphone jack. That uh, I doubt it because it, too big. If you actually look inside of it, it actually has a male pin coming out of it. Oh, okay, which is what the barrel connector usually uses. Yeah. So they, they 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 likely support both. In in any event, it's cool to see more players in this game. I also am I'm I'm particularly impressed by the fact that they're trying to take on Apple and showing statistics and, and not afraid to not afraid to charge for their product. Anytime I see the quote unquote MacBook killer and it's like seven hundred bucks and then they're competing with the twenty three hundred dollar Mac, it's like okay, so you 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 are building an equivalent or better computer and somehow doing it less expensive than a company that's going to mass produce these things that I don't know. I've always struggled with that. Not that there isn't a price tag because you you have a glowing apple on the back of your computer, but all that to say, like, yeah, I, I, I become skeptical. And th- this, this company, it seems like they, I don't know, looks like they really have a, a solid lineup together. So I, as I was pondering this and, and, and looking over it this week and at the same time, looking over uh, OpenSUSE Aeon, I thought, man, you you pair these two things together, 
that would really be something. Here's the other thing. When we're talking about hardware, I'd be remiss if I didn't A, mention Dell's commitment to Linux. They've been doing it for the past few years. They have hardware hardware enablement on the vast majority of their machines. And I had a shout out. I had a recent experience where I sent a computer in under warranty and it was they didn't have to fix it. There was, there was, there was, there was visible signs of where it had been dropped. I don't think that the drop caused the actual problem. And I, I thought that was pretty obvious that the kind of de- the, the kind of thing I was sending it in for wouldn't have been caused by a drop, but I couldn't prove it either way. And so when they originally reached out and said, we're going to have to bill you for the repair, I thought well, that is, that's fair because I can't prove it one way or the other. And in the process of trying to ascertain how much they were going to charge for the repair, at some point, somebody Adele just looked over and went, "No, we're just not going to bill him. We're just gonna we're just gonna fix it for him." And I don't know who did that or why, but I'm eternally grateful. And it takes me back to maybe ten years ago, where I had another compute Dell computer that was maybe a year, it was, it was maybe not quite a year out of out of out of warranty, but well beyond the the scope of where you could say like, "Oh, that was close enough," and they fixed that one for free too, and I. I remember those things. They stick with me. And my experience of, of visiting Dell and, and being there and seeing their commitment to, to Linux, even though it isn't a huge dollar maker for them, and it is kind of a, you know, it's, it's a side market, I think that's really fantastic. And so if you're, if you're looking for a computer to run uh, Linux on, I, I don't think you can go wrong with a Dell. And then, of course, the King of Kings, System76. If you're looking for a computer, you want to know that you're going to have a good experience on Linux. You don't want to have to wonder if you're going to have a, an experience on Linux. That's what those guys do and girls do all day long every day is build computers that run Linux and do a really great job at it. And when I was just having a conversation a few weeks ago with somebody who their last computer was a system 76 laptop and they've looked at the current lineup and for one reason or another, are not happy with the, with the current lineup that they, they have their own ideas of what, what that should be. But they look back and go the, 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 the last the, the the last system 76 computer that they did have has been the best laptop that they've ever owned. And it was purchased right after they bought a MacBook and are more happy with the 76 system 76 than they, they are the MacBook. And that's not an uncommon thread, particularly among universities where they're looking to run Linux. They want to run it out of the box and they don't want to have to think about it. System 76 will guide you through that entire process. And now with the latest stuff that they're doing with American made uh, desktops, soon to be American made laptops and doing pop OS inside all inside. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if good things to say about them. Steve, anything to add to uh, laptops at the right to repair? I think that um, I'm definitely interested in, in the, in this new uh, comer. Previously, I, I was definitely considering my next laptop to be from system 76. So I went, I had two in a row from system 76. Then I picked up a Dell mm-hmm. and uh, now I'm, I'm starting to look cause it's now almost six years old, this, this Dell that's still basically running fine. But uh, I've definitely checked out these new guys. I like the idea of getting core boot and kind of customizing things, especially because now I do almost all of my gaming on my Steam Deck. Mm-hmm. I don't need to have uh, anything chonky anymore. So Yeah, thin and light would be the way to go. Uh, 2-Bit in the chat room says, don't forget about the Frameworks laptop. So that that's another really uh, cool a cool piece of technology to where you can maintain or build the entire thing yourself. Um, also absolutely worth a mention. So uh, we didn't, we, we're not, we're just about out of time, so we're not going to have time to get to, to some of the other stuff we had in our discussion segment, but next cloud hub six is out big thing here, local AI. So they're coming at 
Office 365 and trying to come straight at Google and Microsoft Office. And I think that is, that's an interesting challenge. I think the biggest thing facing them is going to be, they have to have an answer for email. And I don't, I don't know if that's you partner with a FOSS friendly service like Fastmail that will be able to, and they can just use the next cloud app or if self-hosting might, might be something that someone could consider. I would invite you to check out the last episode of Linux Unplugged. Um, Brent actually works for NextCloud, and he was out at their conference and had a lot of great insight to share. You can check that out at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And then lastly, um, Linux Fest Northwest, not happening this year. So they had a issue come up to where the remodel and things that they were going to have to do to the building was just tremendous. And so they said, well, we're going to have to kick it down the road and you'd have to change or you'd have to change venues. And the team that was doing that said, no, we're not going to try and change venues at the last minute. We're like out 30 days or so. So what they're going to do, and I think this is really cool. The best part of any Linux Fest isn't the talks anyway. The best part of the Linux Fest, uh, every Linux Fest, is the hallway track. And if I'm honest with you, I think the hallway track is, is from the way the Bellingham Technical College is laid out, it you get like little pockets of hallway tracks. So this year might be actually one of the best years to go build relationships with other people in the area because that's primarily what they're doing. So they're still going to have like one track for people that want to get some IT knowledge out of it. They're going to have some of that going on. Jupiter Broadcasting is going to be doing a meetup and a lot of fun family activities. So it'll be more of a social nerd get together. But still, if you have tickets booked and you're headed out there, uh, know that that stuff is still happening, even if the conference is not. Music and areas means we're out of time. Show is next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Ask Noah Show.com.